following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So Romans 12, 17 to 21, I've entitled my sermon, How to Change the World. Let's read it together. Hopefully you've got Bibles or apps or something with you. Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil, give consideration to do good before all people. If possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Do not avenge yourselves, beloved, but give room for wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you pour burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So a few things before. Romans 12, as I'm sure you've been, as you've been working through it, builds on the vision of the gospel that Paul has laid out in Romans 1 to 11. And it's a vision for the church. One thing that stands clear in Romans is the new Christian community is not to live by the law, which raises the question of, well, what do we live by? So Paul lays out in this chapter a series of virtues or values that make up the Christian ethical system. So how to be church, and as this series says, you are the church. So what does it mean to be the church? The whole passage flows out of these two verses in 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that takes us to the cross of which we've sung today. The cross is where Jesus presented his body as a living sacrifice. We are to do what Jesus did. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And Laidlaw is all about the renewal of the minds. Sometimes we're criticized for being too intellectual. Dare I say, I don't think we are. But anyway, be transformed. No longer living by those false patterns that we're surrounded by from wherever they come, but living with renewed minds, being transformed to something new. And then the passage unfolds this. And up to this point, the central focus has been how to relate to one another. And three words that I would sum it up with, a service, as Christ came as the servant to serve. Love, as Reuben emphasized last week, agape, self-giving on behalf of others, and humility. Not just hanging out, and elevating the cool people, the choice people, but all people are one in Christ. It's a flat society. We are all at the same status level. In other words, a cruciform people. Cruciformity is to be formed in the crucis, the cross, to take on the life of Jesus, to be clothed in it, as Paul says in Romans 13, and live out the cruciform lifestyle individually and as a community a cross-shaped church. This is why the, the great cathedrals of Europe are shaped like a cross, to remind people that they are to be like the cross. Paul shifts subtly in the passage to external relations, how to be the church in a hostile world, which Reuben picked up last week. And there's two little verses I want to, or bits of verses I want to pick out that he's already mentioned, which was spoken of last week. Romans 12, 13, the second bit of it, reads... Technically, pursue the love of strangers or the love for strangers. Dioko, see that word dioko there, the, the Greek word that I've sort of in brackets there. That is a hunting term, meaning to pursue. 
pursue hospitality. It's translated in many uh, translations, but it can also be pursue the love of people who are different. Immigrants, foreigners. Rome was full of foreigners at the time of of uh, Paul. It was a massive multitude of a million people who had condensed in four times as much as Calcutta today. That's how dense it was. And it was full of people from all over the empire. Pursue them. And then he says, bless those who pursue you, persecute you. See how the word play is, is happening there? So we are to pursue the love of the people pursuing us. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? In a world of enmity and we see it so vividly in the Middle East at the moment. Bless them and do not curse. Paul is going to unwrap in this passage what's, what that looks like. He's going to flesh it out. Paul gives six angles on how a Christian should live and relate to the outside world. Having already said that, how, what does it mean to pursue the love of strangers or people who are different to bless our enemies? And each speaks of agape. Each speaks of emulation of Christ. In my opinion, six ways to change the world and six ways that have changed the world. Our society in the West is shaped so profoundly by the value system here. Sure, the society is throwing off the essence of the Christ faith so much and it, it grieves us deeply, but this has shaped this wonderful society that people want to flood from all over the world to live in. I'm not just talking about New Zealand. It's flawed. All expressions of Christian faith are flawed but it can change the world. It has changed the world and will change the world. Firstly, do not repay evil with evil. In the ancient world, it was a reciprocal world. It was a you scratch my back, I scratch you world. It could be positive or negative. Positively, if I do something good for you, like invite you to my place for a meal, which would be a dangerous thing to say, now that you know my address, then you would be expected to respond in kind or in equivalence. The Greek world was built around, and the Roman world was built around patronage, where wealthy pa patrons of status would gather people to them as clients and bestow on them goodness, but not for nothing. There was always a payoff. It could be negative, whereby if someone attacks you or wounds you or takes you to court and humiliates you, you would do the same to them, and you would find a way to do it. And so you have societies that harbor resentments that go back thousands of years all over the world, positive or negative reciprocation. In fact, it was a matter of honor. It was a matter of shame not to do so. It was cowardice. So what you have in this Christian ethic is remarkably subversive. In the Jewish law, we have the lex talionis, which we know as the eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth from Exodus 21, 24 and other Old Testament texts. And so this was etched into their culture. The lex talionis is interesting because it both limits retaliation, one eye for an eye, not 55 eyes for an eye, but it reinforces this idea of a vengeance and justifies it. And you see across Israel's story that people will avenge their, uh, Israel against their enemies. And this is, in fact, the pattern of the whole ancient world. In Maori culture, it's called utu, in Cook Island culture, I lived in the islands, it was called Ua. And this idea carries over there. Recently, I've been to the Cook Islands, and I heard something of their story in this regard, which I'm going to share a little bit later. Jesus took this head on, head, head on. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. This is what it means to be a Christian. 
to be people who behave differently, to stop the end, the cycle of violence that's going on in our world and be the ones who say no. Because war can only cease when one party decides to stop fighting, right? That'll slow it down for a while. Hopefully it'll end it. It is said that Gandhi, although this is disputed that it originated in Gandhi, said an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. It's another expression, a fantastic saying, isn't it? it on last night's TV3, I don't know if you saw it, you might have seen the children training, the Hamas children, the, the kids of people in Gaza training to take vengeance on Israel for the release, recent um, violence. And Netanyahu's election has spurred them on now. Now, I'm not taking any sides in this debate. I'm not going to. But I, I just felt deeply wounded as I saw these young boys with weapons graduating from the school of retaliation, effectively. This has to end. This has to end. A little example from my workplace is a colleague of mine whose brother was murdered a few years ago in a gas station. This tested the family immensely as these three young boys had just walked up behind him and clubbed him over the head because they wanted his money, and he was murdered. Now, I've watched my colleague go through grief, but now through reconciliation and a relationship with one of those boys who's come to know Jesus and to actually visit him in prison. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Second thing, give consideration to doing good before all people. Rather than revenge or utu or ua, an eye for an eye, we are to do good before all people. The Greek word here is a fascinating one. Sometimes Greek is boring, but sometimes it's exciting. Mostly it's exciting. Pro-noyo, two words. Pro-noyo, which we get the sort of idea of he's got a lot of nous. Mind, think. Think beforehand about doing good before all people. In other words, be prepared. We Christians have to think deeply about the world we're in and how we're going to behave as we go into contexts. How we're going to behave with our wives, our husbands, our children, our workmates, our employees. We have to be ready. It's kind of like 1 Peter, always be ready to give an answer and always be ready to do good and what that might look like when we get there. And we're to do good, not evil, for all people. It's going to recur in the next verse. All people, including each other, because we're people, most of us. Do good for all people, the people we encounter as we go out of this place after church as God's missionaries. Whether it's the sports field, which is interesting because Michael Jones said it's more blessed to give than receive. But he did so within the laws of the rugby game. I see Timo over there, brother. He, he was, I played Timo. He ran over me three times to score. Don't tell anyone that. That's why, that's why he was an international rugby player and I wasn't. It doesn't matter where we are to not reciprocate with evil but with good. And of course we can apply that in a thousand ways. I have enemies now. I'll put this picture up which will give you an idea why. This is me. This is me in my new gear. I'm a, I'm a mammal, middle-aged man in lycra. And I'm just going to undress a little bit to show you some red tape here. This is my strapped-up shoulder. I have enemies, and they're you guys. Like the guy I rode past as I went up Rosedale yesterday, and he came flying down his road in his SUV. And I just went, 
and thankfully stopped because a few weeks earlier I'd been hit by a car where a young woman came out and took out my back wheel and sent me flying and injured my shoulder. I've been tested by that. I have to say I failed the test. My initial response was to jump up and give her a verbal spray. But then she was very contrite and very gracious. Now I formed a friendship with this young woman. She works in a local cafe, and now I'm having to shift watering holes so I can go there and build a friendship with her. In one of her texts, she said to me, I feel so guilty for hitting you. I'm so sorry. And I came back to her, and I says, don't feel guilty. It's okay. I forgive you, and I'm a Christian, and God forgives you. And now we have this relationship, which I'm hoping will end with her coming to know Jesus. But that isn't the condition of the relationship, is it? I'm to love her and encourage her. She's an immigrant, and I need to show her the love of Jesus. Thirdly, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Rather than revenge, goodness, and peace. We're to cultivate peace. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit, and we need to cultivate that. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. That means we're the ones to initiate, aren't we? We're the ones to seek reconciliation when something's going wrong. In our relationships, our marriages, our families, more broadly, in our workplaces, to seek what is called restorative justice. There are two things going on here. One, we do our best to be at peace, as far as it depends on you. We initiate, we humble ourselves, we cease hostilities, whatever they are. But the outcome is not guaranteed. It may not be that there's reconciliation. Reconciliation requires two people to come and reconcile. Ours is to be the one who initiates and brings that to pass. Reconciliation is a great challenge to us, but we're to be committed to it as God's people, no matter what it takes. Fourthly, do not take revenge, but give room for wrath. We're to do good, we're to seek peace, and let God deal with those who oppose us. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And when you unwrap that passage, it's a great passage of God's statement to Israel as they go into the land that he will be with them. I've got your back, says God. Vengeance is mine. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. He avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. Romans 8.31 says, we are more than conquerors. Sorry, it says, if God is for us, who will be against us? Romans 8.37 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. There is a reciprocation that still stands in Scripture, but our reciprocation is only goodness, and we leave the rest to God. And remember, this is a real world of violence. This is the Roman world. This is the world in which armies have swept through consistently for the last thousands of years, the previous thousands of years, the Greeks, Alexander the Great, etc., etc., dominating. This is a brutal world. The point is God is on our side, but that shouldn't lead us to further violence, a just war, or whatever it is. It leads us to trust in Him. He's got it. And sometimes we have to wait, but we will see it. Ours is peace, love, and goodness in the face of violence and persecution. We leave retribution to God. 
Now, this has a variety of forms. It includes that God will act in history. Have you noticed that no despot has ever continued on? There's a great poem by Ozymandias, which um, ends up with a sort of uh, headstone in the ground of a great empire. And on the sign it says, and on this rock it stands, or something, I can't remember the exact words. But there's a fantastic poem that says these things fall. God is acting in history, shaping and limiting evil. But it also includes, in this passage, the role of the government. In the next section, it says that the government is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Of course, sometimes governments go rogue too. And then God will bring them down or make sure they come down. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And of course, ultimately, leaving room for wrath is leaving room to deal with it eternally when he, in the great wash-up, brings his justice. But there's a really subtle twist here. Leave room for wrath actually takes us to the cross, which is the meeting place of human wrath as they crucified Jesus and God's wrath that Jesus took on our behalf. Paul is saying leave room for wrath and leave room for the cross that deals with wrath. So when we have someone slight us, like the girl who knocked me off my bike, I have a choice of getting really uptight and angry and wanting justice against the skill, or I forgive and we reconcile and we form a relationship. You see how what Paul is saying, Paul is saying leave room for God to do his stuff. He will sort it. Like my friend, the boy who murdered his brother, one of those boys has become a Christian. Imagine if we had the death penalty, would he? I don't know. He may have. Who knows? Fifthly, show hospitality to enemies. Rather, we do as Paul said earlier, we pursue the love for strangers, the love of strangers, hospitality even to our enemies. We bless, we do not curse. How? We bless them in what the ancient world uh, construed as the most intimate thing you could do for a, a stranger or a foreigner or someone who's come into your midst, you welcome them into your home. It was a political act to eat together was to welcome them in and say, you're part of our whanau. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Why? To heap burning coals on his head. Some scholars think this is about shame. So you can shame them. And there is a sense in which shame does stay with persecutors over time. But more likely, Paul has in mind ultimate wrath. As they continue to persecute us and treat us badly, they are storing up for themselves wrath, and that's God's problem and their problem. What's our call? To continue to love and show hospitality to them. And then finally, Paul wraps it up. Do not yield to the temptation of allowing evil to overcome us. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The Greek word here is a variant of Nike, and it's not about shoes the goddess of victory. Do not allow evil to have victory over us and enslave ourselves to it, but overcome evil with good. Now, of course, this has an individual dynamic to it, that propensity for retaliation that we all have in us. Now, I had, as a young man, I had a real issue with anger that I inherited from my Irish forebears. My dad was angry, his dad was angrier, and so it goes on. And I went and saw a counselor at one point in my 
uh, young adult life and sat down and worked through why I was so angry and it was the best thing I ever did. It changed me and I thank God for that. We have to overcome, if we're to be faithful Christians, our propensity to respond and react. Develop those skills that we find to deal with our anger or whatever it is. But there's a bigger scope here. Evil in the world is overcome with good. It is possible now that Jesus has come to planet Earth and died and risen again, and his spirit is liberated to his people, that through us he can transform the world, and he has, and he is, isn't he? And Paul is painting a picture here of what will happen in the Roman world in the future. We must be prepared always to forgive, however difficult. In fact, Jesus said when you go to bring a sacrifice at the altar, reconcile with your brother and sister first, we can cross that over to communion. We should deal with our issues before we come to communion. This is the sort of response that I'm talking about here that changed the ancient world. The Roman world was a violent world. In AD 49, Claudius kicked out all the Jews from Rome. This is only seven or eight years before the writing of Romans. He kicked all the Jews out of Rome because they were fighting about a fellow called Crestus. We find this in Suetonius 25.4 and in Acts chapter 18, where they were booted out. Christians were being persecuted by Jewish believers, and it was getting very violent and messy, and it was so much so that the emperor kicked them out. So Christians were getting it from Jews. The, Jew, the, the basic view that the Romans have in their literature about Christians is that it's a pernicious superstition, the word superstition. They are seen as corrupt and evil and enemies of the state. Within seven years of the writing of Romans going forward, Nero would blame Christians for the fire of Rome. Some of them he clothed in skins and threw them to dogs. Some of them he crucified and some of them he used to light up his garden in Nero's circus, which is now where St. Peter's is. A violent attack on Christians. And there is no record of Christians fighting back. Praise God. They got it. And actually, we see the issue of shame now because Nero is a statement of sh is a name of shame in, in the world, isn't it? So there's a sense in which what Paul said earlier about burning coals does work. They did not respond in violence, and the empire became Christianized in 250 years as Christians relentlessly pursued the path of love and non-violent retaliation. Here's a little description from the epistle to Diogenes, written in the second century. Look at what it says. The Christians love all people and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are lacking in all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet their very, very dishonor, in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what we must do. In Rarotonga, where I've just been on a holiday remembering my youth in Rarotonga, where I saw a very bad hurricane, by the way, and I still remember that terrible day when there were coconut trees flying over the sky. The gospel transformed Rarotonga. Prior to 1823, they were a, a society of ua, 
violent retribution. The tribe that I heard the story of was hiding in the highlands. They had broken away from another tribe in the Ararangi area to get away from violence, and they had to guard themselves 24 hours a day. It was a violent, violent life. They were cannibalistic. They ate each other. They believed they imbibed the strength of the other person when they ate them. In 1823, John Williams, with a Tahitian by the name of Papaya, took the gospel to Rarotonga. And the tribe in question was, that, I, that I heard the story of was the Puaikura tribe, and they embraced Christianity. We heard about how the uh, Papaya came in to the marae and told the story to the chief, very like a Maori marae. And he said, the, the guy said, where's the, God, where's the God you talk of? And he said, the God is enthroned on a throne above. And everyone went, woo. Arorangi. And they embraced Christianity. They buried their weapons and stopped living in the highlands and moved down and lived on the coast. And that's why the Cook Islanders live, the Rarotongans live around on the coast. And now, in the census, 98 or something percent name themselves Christians in some form or other. That society has been transformed. There's not a perfect society. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. It's certainly a Christianized nation, praise God. Closer to home. We have the story of Parihaka, which we should all know intimately. November the 5th, 1881. During this phase, that early phase, 1814, of course, the gospel was first preached in New Zealand. We heard it last year at Christmas time, and the gospel had taken a long time to penetrate, but eventually it started to flow through the nation as people turned from Utu to Agape, to the cross. Parihaka was a small Taranaki Māori settlement, which you can still visit today. And during the 1860 to 1881 period of war, as more colonists came in and started to acquire land, and we don't want to get into the politics of that except to say that, in my view, it was very unjust. And the supposedly Christians were taking land, and Parihaka became a resistance center. But they refused to use violence. Te Fiti Orongamai and Tohu Kakahi led a movement of non-violent resistance. They did things like pulled up tent pegs, put up barricades, and invited relationship with these colonists, which was rejected. So in 1881, the state had had enough and invaded the village. They saw it coming, and Tafiti is quoted as saying, if any man thinks of his gun or his horse and goes to fetch it, he will die by it. He's quoting scripture. These men were prophets. He could see the problem. It will just perpetuate the cycle of violence. 2,000 people, including children, welcomed in the soldiers, offering them food. Your enemy, a wonderful example. Where were the, who are the Christians in this? I'll, I'll let God be the judge. 2,500 of them sang in a marae. Tefiti and Tohu were arrested. They were exiled after a mock trial. Sound familiar? The place was destroyed and looted, and the women and girls were raped. It's horrific. What we have here is a living example to us from our history, from the indigenous New Zealanders, the Māori people, of what it means to be a Christian. Isn't it wonderful? And Parihaka, in my opinion, we should all ditch fireworks on November the 5th, and we should have Parihaka Day. And there's a movement for that, so get in behind it. You know, this can happen again. God has a dream. And the dream is a part that, that we would live on the path of the cross towards that dream. And what is the path of the cross? It's laying down our own 
violent anger, desire for retribution, desire for justice, we're going to leave that to God and we're going to live the cruciform life. We're going to wash the feet of the world. We're going to take up our crosses and we're going to trudge through life, bearing all sorts of shame and struggle. The appeal of the gospel is to take up your cross, take up your towel and follow me. People need to see the gospel. Reuben said that in his great sermon last week. He said, sometimes people need to see the gospel. I don't want to differ with your preacher because I love him. But I say always. They always need to see it. Particularly in a society that has heard it in so many weird forms for so long. And a gospel that's got so corrupted as we've failed as the people of God to live out what this passage calls us to be and do. They've got to see it. They see it from cruciform communities like this one, who just refuse to yield, to be overcome by evil, but determined to overcome evil with good. Churches full of the life that this passage sees for us. By the way, this passage is just the Sermon on the Mount recast, isn't it? When you actually see the connections, we can go there as well. It's a wonderful community, but it's a suffering community. It's a struggling community. It's a supportive community. It's a community that relentlessly pursues the virtues of God. You know, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because of the deep truth of this. Jesus shocked the world when he said, love your enemies. That is unprecedented. And that is the the most radical thing that when you think about it, who came up with that? Only God could come up with that. These are the virtues that will change our world. It's what God dreams of. It changed the Roman world. It changed the the world of the Cook Islands. To a degree, it has changed our world. We have a garbled, mixed-up story, a messy story. But but all stories are messy. Your stories are messy. Our challenge is to heed these words and live it. The question for us all is, will we join them? How do you have the power to do this? By becoming a Christian. And God downloads into your life his very being, his presence, the Holy Spirit, and empowers you for that. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you that if you are attracted to this compelling vision of a world, invite God in. Invite him in. As we take communion, make that an act of commitment to God. We should all do that, shouldn't we? Let us pray. God, I just love you. Who would have thought of a story like the Jesus story. I mean, seriously. I can't remember what words Graham used earlier, but it's outrageous. It's incredible. You love us so much that you said, I will resolve the problem of wrath, and I will receive it on your behalf. And all we have to do is receive you. And you welcome us into your life. And we are swept up in this new journey. Lord, this nation, this city, this nation, Vanuatu, The Middle East, this world needs desperately this ethic. But this ethic can only be liberated by the power of the Spirit in your people. And I would pray for this community, you would continue to uplift it, to walk the path of the cross. For each individual here to go home and where they need to, to make forgiveness. To again try to find that place of reconciliation, to be peacemakers, to do good, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Lord, we ask you to give us the strength for this. And as we come to communion, as we deeply remember the broken body of Jesus, 
Lord, fill us again with fresh strength that we would be the people you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.